Before we begin, there are three seats in the front row that are here to be taken by anyone who feels uncomfortable or would like to come forward. But please do it now so that we, when we start, everybody's settled. Okay? Okay. I am Pamela Pierce. Um, I'm on the staff of Penn American Center, and I am the coordinator of their events. Um, I'm never on this side of the microphone. Well, let's wait for a second. I... Okay, there are two right here. Sorry. Okay. This one over there? Okay. Or we can go around. Okay. Um, and the reason that I am um, doing this tonight is that Sharon Sheehy Stark, who was supposed to introduce the evening, um, is unable to be here. Um, she broke her hip. And when I called her the other day, she said to me something wonderful. Uh, Sharon is a former new writer. And she said to me if she had broken any other part of her body and could possibly sit down for the period of time needed tonight and could hobble in, she would be here to do this because it meant so much to her. Um, she was looking forward to coming very much. But she said that what she would have said had she been here is that this means a great deal to her uh, because this is how she got her book published. What happened is that she's one of our a number of success stories that we've had from this particular event, um, of which this is number 17. She read as one of the new writers a number of years ago. There was an editor in the audience who said, please let me take you out for lunch tomorrow. She took Sharon out for lunch and bought her book, her first book, right then and there on the spot in the restaurant. So Sharon has a very fond feeling for this particular event that Penn does and really deeply regrets not being able to be here. So... Um, that's, that's why Sharon is not here, and that's why I'm here. The couple of things I'd like to say just to open are that um, we at Penn would like to thank Encarnita Quinlan and the fantastic staff here at this wonderful, wonderful bookstore for once again making this evening possible and doing extra work and going out of their way to make um, our working relationship really wonderful. So thank you all. <laughs> thank you, bookstore. It's just Encarnita and Endicott. Um, there is no smoking at any time in the bookstore. If you want to smoke at any point, you have to go outside. After this is over, we will have a brief uh, reception right in the front, uh, opposite the cash register, where we'll have wine and soda, and we can all talk, and you can talk with the new writers and the introducers and each other and look at books and buy books and just have a generally good time. Okay, that's, that's that. The program uh, order will be a little bit different tonight. Another, another thing that I regret to have to tell you is that Keith Adams, um, who was to be introduced by Jane uh, Cortez, is too ill to be here. Uh, we, hope he'll, we, we assume he'll be all right, but he's not all right enough to be here tonight. So um, that's our, our loss, really, because we're all looking forward to hearing him. So anyway, we will start then. We're going to change the program order a little bit. And the first... Um, the first person will be will will go like this. Robert Stone will present Paula Reddick, and then Philip Lopate will present Jessica Greenbaum, and then Elliot Weinberger will present David Hinton, and that's how it will be. Okay, Bob. Thanks. It's always uh, it's always a, a, a feeling of homecoming for me to come to the Endicott book. Uh, store in in, uh, in in the most literal way because in the days when this was a hotel I used to live here <laughs> so it's, I, I am coming home um, 
Paula Reddick comes from South Dakota. She began life as an artist, as a dancer, dancing with the, uh, the Arizona Ballet Theater and then with the Harkness Ballet for several years. Uh, she graduated from Barnard and went into the Syracuse uh, University writing program, which is where I first encountered her work. And one has that feeling, I think, of coming, of being exposed to the work of a writer uh, and feeling that immediacy, that, uh, that sense of, of the power of the work itself. And I felt that when I, uh, at, at Syracuse, uh, read a story of, uh, of, of Paula Reddick. She is currently a Schweitzer Humanities Fellow at the State University of New York at Albany, studying with Toni Morrison and uh, working on a collection of stories. And she will read from a story of hers called uh, Edgar Arger, Paula Reddick. I'm going to read the first section of what is a longer story, um, and it is called Edgar Arger. In the early morning hours of Good Friday, Edgar's phone rings, shaking him from his dreams. He remembers that tonight he is sleeping at home. He can't see the phone in this dark room. It rings again. Edgar reaches from under the covers and feels around the top of the night table. He's got the receiver in his hand. He stays on his back and does not open his eyes. Hello, hello. James, Edgar says. Dad? James, oh, James. Edgar keeps his eyes closed and holds the phone in his left hand, his right palm pressed flat to his brow. He breathes hard. He blows out, out. Dad, I've been mugged. Edgar moistens his dry, cracked lips and tries to swallow. There were these two black guys, and they started following me, and then they jumped me from behind, and they took my money, and I don't know where I am. Yeah, they took my paycheck. I don't know where I am, Dad, and I'm hurt. They hurt me bad. They cut my eye, and I'm bleeding. Edgar listens to his son crying from miles away. And they had knives, Dad, and they cut me real bad. I'm bleeding. They cut my eye, my eye. There's blood running all over now, and I can't see, and I'm just sitting here bleeding from my eye. Edgar turns on the light and looks at his travel alarm. <clears throat> it's 3 o'clock in the morning, which means it's 2 o'clock in San Diego, which makes it just about right. Edgar's waiting to hear Katie's footsteps as she scrambles from her bedroom across the hall. Any minute, she should be banging open his door, demanding in a harsh whisper, Is that James? Is everything okay? Let me talk to him. Let me talk to him. He would gladly hand it over, but that doesn't happen. James, give me the number where you are. I don't know where I am. I don't know. I'm bleeding, but I beat them nigger bastards bad too, Dad. I beat them bad. Edgar's cheeks puff up, and he starts blowing out again. Now listen to me, James. You just call me back in about five minutes, you hear? Five minutes. Okay, yeah, sure. The receiver clicks like a shot in Edgar's ear, and he reaches it over the table and lets go, missing the cradle. It swings to the floor, crashing against the white table legs. Edgar rolls over onto his side and pushes himself up. He sits on the edge of his bed, grabs the phone from the floor, and dials the operator. She connects him with San Diego's police department. The police hadn't picked up a James Arger that night. 
Edgar pictures, excuse me, Edgar pictures his son slumped inside a phone booth on a dimly lit corner in a black neighborhood or in the grimy hallway of a whorehouse with rats crawling all over and his son on the floor bleeding from the eye. Could be they've got him over at County Detox, the policeman says. You could try there. James Arger. Yeah, I can see him from here, the desk nurse at Detox says. He's trying his best to get out of here. He's been on that phone for nearly an hour now. Edgar imagines a stocky brunette in a starched cap, standing behind a gleaming white desk, looking down a dark hallway to where James is plugging quarters into a payphone. He'll be in here all weekend. It's a lockup, 48 hours minimum. Weekend pickups stay until Monday morning. No, no bleeding. There is a small scratch on his cheek, but we're all doctors and nurses here. Nothing to worry about. We just put a Band-Aid on it, and he's fine. Edgar thanks her and hangs up. Lights out, he rolls back onto his twin bed and pulls the covers up around his neck. He lies on his back with his eyes open, his hands clenched together high up on his belly where it hurts. James doesn't call back. Friday morning, Edgar walks down Ninth Street on his way to meet Harold for their weekly breakfast. His long strides squeak, heel-toe against the thin crust of snow on the sidewalk. The sun is warm, but the late snowfall has chilled the air. There is no way, he says, no way I can get those cattle down for Tuesday's sale. Just can't. He's talking to the big pine on the corner of Ninth and St. Paul. No truckers this weekend, no move, and no, sir. He can see the gray tips of his elephant hide cowboy boots jetting out against the white snow. When the spring breaks, it's going to be wrong, all wrong. I'm going to lose if I have to keep those cows till then. But there's bulls to buy for Darl. That could make a guy some dough. Yes, sir, there's that. Edgar falls silent as two Indian boys in matching brand-new cowboy hats, torn jeans, and worn-out sneakers approach him on the sidewalk. They are passing a paper sack. Edgar watches as one of them takes the sack to his lips, throws his head back for a hard swallow, then exhales a steamy cloud into the air, passing the crumpled brown bag to the other. Hi, Edgar says sharply, as the two boys fall into single file to pass him. They pass quickly, hands at their sides, not looking up from the pavement. Well, shoot, James. Edgar takes his hand out of his pocket and, pressing a finger to his throat, snaps his vest collar shut. The street is empty. He crosses himself, feeling as if a rope were tightening around his chest. Dear Lord, he whispers, please watch over us all. Please watch over us. Please watch us, please. Edgar passes from under the shadow of the Lutheran church steeple and is in the sun again. Presho. Jake Kimball's holding some Charlotte bulls just outside of Presho. He takes the last three steps up to Harold's front door and knocks. Harold looks pale and thin in his tan pajamas. His white hair sticks straight out from behind his ears. Well, Edgar, come on in there, he says with a twitch of his head and a flutter of his right arm. Come on in. Harold, what do you say we go down to Sambo's and get ourselves a cup of coffee and maybe even some pancakes or something? <coughs> on me, Edgar says, squinting to see through the screen door into Harold's living room. Just like living on the reservation, Edgar had told Katie after his first visit to Harold's new place. Living just like one of those dead drunk Indians on the reservation. Now you know I don't take charity from no man, Edgar, Harold says, but the coffee sounds like an idea. Harold starts shaking his right arm around again and jumping from one foot to the other. So come on in, come on in and I'll get some pants on, come on. I just don't know why you can't make any decent friends, Edgar, Katie had said in response. You're always dragging home those old dogs, and I'm sure I'm not surprised that Harold's house is a pigsty. Edgar feels a grin tighten across his face. 
He shuts the screen door behind him as he steps into Harold's two-room house. Inside, he tears open the top snaps of his vest and reaches into his shirt pocket, past the Sturgis livestock pen, past the scrap paper notes filled with orders and prices per head for a Parliament king-sized cigarette. He lights up. Harold just keeps chattering from the other room while he gets dressed. Heard from Deb. Great job. Real decent type job now, Edgar. You know, in office, the whole deal. I don't know how I did it, Edgar, but I sure raised that girl right. Yep, head on her shoulders, that's a fact, and she's making the bucks. Enough to be buying herself a new car. Did I tell you she was going to buy a new car? No, no, you didn't. Edgar fixes on the gold glass ashtray spilling over onto the Formica coffee table. You know, I saw that Jake Kimball the other day, Harold yells from the bedroom. Jake Kimball, you know Jake, don't you, Edgar? Sure, sure do. Edgar takes a pull off his cigarette and lays back into the broken floral couch, crossing his legs high in front of him. His head back, he blows smoke straight up at the spotty ceiling. He was out with some pretty young gal from somewhere out here, near Blackhawk, and he was dead, and I mean dead drunk in a bar there in Hot Springs. Yes, it looked like he was heading for action with that young thing hanging all over him like she was. Action, if you know what I mean. Harold winks at Edgar as he crosses the tiny hall from his bedroom to his bathroom. His arm jerks up and down, tucking his shirt into his unzipped pants. No, Edgar says, keeping his breath back, moving his lips only slightly. It comes out like a slow leak. No, Jesus Christ, Harold, no, I don't know what you mean. It's sure hard to sleep with you pulling all the covers to your side of the bed every night, Edgar. Maybe we'd both sleep better in twin beds, Katie had said years ago, when they found themselves lying back to back, stiff, with hands clenched into fists, eyes either wide open or pressed shut, and feet that jerked quickly away from an accidental touch. Then, in twin beds, it was the sound of the other in the night that kept them from relaxing, that forced them to hold up their guards even to the edge of sleep. I just can't get to sleep with all that snoring and talking and tossing around you do, Edgar, Katie had said. I think it would be better if you'd sleep in the blue bedroom from now on. Action. Well, as far as action goes, there is no milking a stone. No milk in a stone. And that's just the way it is. Edgar had accepted that since the beginning of their marriage. Never, Katie had said. Never, and I mean never, would I even consider anything like that, Edgar Arger. And if that's the way you want it, then you'll just have to find somebody else. They'd been married only a few weeks. Katie, her face flushed and wet with tears, had stormed out of their bedroom. Edgar had only heard about it. He had only wanted her to take it as he had pictured her, with her wet lips smooth around him, to take him into her that way. Lying alone in their bed, Edgar regretted it all. He would never bring it up again. That's not what marriage is about anyway, not even close. Edgar knew that even way back then. Harold crosses back to the bedroom, jabbing a towel at his mouth. I just went into that bar for a cup of coffee, but there they were, Jake and that girl, having a time. That Jake was nothing ever but an old cat, was he, Edgar? Nothing ever but an old cat with smarts. Yep, smarts, just like you got him, Edgar. That's why you guys can handle this cattle business. Not me, no siree, not me. I'm ready, Harold says, stepping out of the bedroom his rashy red hands adjusting his brown Stetson, the only good hat he'd owned in the 20 years Edgar had known him. Dragging home old dogs, ha. Edgar pushes himself to the edge of the sofa and crushes out his cigarette. That's why James never had any friends that weren't losers, would be Katie's next line. He followed the only example he ever got from home. Edgar blows out hard. He starts to stand, coughs, then blows out again, staying down. 
Harold just stands there waiting, grinning in pink, looking peaked under his fancy hat. Okay, Edgar stands up. Okay, Harold, let's go. And the two old cattle buyers walk out into the brisk morning air, heading for the breakfast special at Sambo's. Edgar walks ahead, trying to keep out of range of Harold's flailing arms. Harold does double time, taking two steps for every one of Edgar's, skipping down the sidewalk like a scared jackrabbit, shouting the same old gibberish right into Edgar's ear. Nervous breakdown my foot, Katie had said. That Harold Becker just drank himself silly, that's all. That's what really happened, Edgar, and you know it better than anybody. Edgar knew it, or knew that he thought it, but that was no reason for Katie to be yelling at him about it. Edgar never had any liquor in their house. There was never a beer in the fridge, never. Never wine or scotch or brandy, vermouth, gin, vodka, sherry, never in their house. When James was just 15, Edgar found an empty whiskey bottle in the boy's car, and James was right then taught a lesson. Now, James, Edgar stayed cool. This liquor, this drinking business has got to stop. You start in on this stuff, and I'll guarantee you you won't be able to keep on a straight track. Why, a young man can't keep up his grades if he's wasting his time drinking. It all leads to no good. I may not know much, James, and I know you think I don't know much, but I've seen it. I've seen good men ruined. I've seen it. James just nodded, strands of his too long, dark hair swinging back and forth, catching on his eyelashes, hanging in strings down the center of his face. And James, Edgar continued, the lawn needs mowing and the oil in my car needs changing, so you can just get right to that because I have to leave early tomorrow morning for the, sta for the sale in Belfouche. James just kept nodding his head as he walked away into the garage for oil. And get a haircut, Edgar yelled after him. The whole thing stuck like a burr under Edgar's collar. Then a few weeks later, James came home, sick drunk at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a school day. Katie put some coffee in her son, undressed him, and got him into bed. Next day, Edgar just sat in, listened in while Katie explained to James, reasoned with James, pleaded with James. The boy was nodding, agreeing with everything his mother said, and Edgar didn't say a word. Then on Saturday morning, Edgar did a man's job. He took James by the arm and dragged him out to the garage. And while James yelled and screamed for his mom, Edgar pulled the heavy leather belt from his pant loops and strapped the boy good all over, then left him curled up on a stack of old tires, shivering and crying like a shorn lamb. Edgar went back into the house. Katie didn't look at him, but he could see it all in her face. She went into the bathroom and closed the door. Edgar left town on business. Neither James nor Katie said a word about it when he got back, two weeks later. Neither of them said a word. People can get awful sensitive about their private stuff. Harold is talking about somebody they know. And never tell you nothing that's the truth, even if it don't matter to you one way or the other. They are rounding the last corner. So how the hell is a cattle business, Edgar? Edgar turns to Harold. A rush of cold air hits the light sweat on his forehead, giving him a sick chill all over. Fine, Harold, just fine. Edgar can't shake the feeling. You know it as good as anybody, Harold. It's a crapshoot, he says, more secure with each step. At best, it's a crapshoot. They take one of the bright orange booths by the window. Edgar watches the traffic on Jackson Boulevard. There are license plates from all over, people coming home for Easter with Mom and Dad. He orders coffee while Harold looks at the menu. Edgar doesn't need a menu. He ate plenty before he left the house, and he knows just what he wants. They've got some terrific bacon and eggs here, Harold, he says, and that breakfast special is something you just can't pass up. Sausage and hash browns and pancakes. Edgar can hear himself saying this. It sounds like he's talking to a baby. 
And those pancakes are good. I mean good. Edgar is laughing now, his naturally red cheeks taking a harsher tone. Harold, too, is laughing at Edgar's silly baby talk. So they sit there laughing until the waitress comes to take their order. Thank you. I first met uh, Jessica Greenbaum when I came down to Houston to teach in the University of Houston. Uh, almost the first day I got there, she uh, picked me up and took me around in her car to assure me in my uh, deep culture shock that it was going to be all right and that there were other displaced New Yorkers and that there was a way to live there. She even told me how I could uh, uh, pose as a relative uh, to get the use of the Shamrock uh, swimming pool uh, something I never did, although it was good advice. Um, anyway, Jessica uh, had uh, gone to Barnard and then to University of Texas, and uh, she was already in the writing program when I got down there. She took a few courses from me, but I never really thought of her as one of my students uh, because she already had such a strong voice uh, that, in a way, she, she was nobody's student by that point. Uh, it was very clear whether she was writing poetry or prose. Uh, and it'd be kind of hard to summarize what that Jessie voice was, but I think of it as a kind of feisty lyricism. Uh, all of her work uh, is, has, a, has this quality of a feverish conversation. Um, it's very heady, and it's like someone almost tossing in her sleep and sending off sparks in different directions. Her work has a lot of tensions, uh, which are... Uh, which come from her trying to reconcile being pulled in lots of different directions, I think. There are geographical pulls, like the Northeast and the Southwest and her family living in the, in the South. Uh, there are familial pulls, uh, masculine-feminine tensions, uh, and somehow her voice, which is um, steady and urgent, holding the whole thing together. Uh, she moved back to New York after she got an M.A., in, uh, in creative writing. And she's had poems published in a lot of places, which I'll read off to you because I can't remember them. Partisan Review, Georgia Review, Southwest Review, The Nation, The Women's Review of Books, The Texas Observer, and other places. And um, she's about to get married. Uh, and that's about all. I give you Jesse Greenbaum. Go get him, Jess. Thanks, Penn. I'm going to read four poems, which I suspect will compose a kind of 15-minute reenactment of dipping into hell and coming back out. A sort of goodbye to all that and hello to all this sort of reading. And during such dips, and especially in matters of writing, my friends have been my spiritual patrons, and I want to thank them. And I'd like to dedicate this reading to my new family-to-be, the Marcuses. <clears throat> this first poem was written around the time of a kind of minor league Jewish holiday called Shavuot, which celebrates the original receiving of the Torah. And I only know this because I turned to my Jewish cliff notes. At the time, Michael Strasfeld's book, The Jewish Holidays, from which this poem takes its rather unwieldy epigrams. 
there are two. And the first one is, <coughs> during Shavuot, we prepare by forming ourselves into vessels to receive the Torah. Each of us creates a receptacle made of our needs and questions. This process precipitates the drawing down out of a universe saturated with blessings, just those things that your vessel requires. This is each person's Torah. The second one is, one tradition says the day of judgment for trees is Shavuot. May Notebook. Everyone has headaches from the month of rain. This morning we hope, but the windows are white with mist. We're still floating in bondage, in bandages of clouds. April showers bring May showers, notes a friend, and the day proceeds like a hangover, the expected progression of disappointment to improvement, privacy to municipality, replace this month by restraint. A collaboration of clouds and a precariousness of spirit we thought only winter provided. The treehouse, before leaves appeared, was not perched in a dream, but imitated a crow's nest over hard facts. You could see the underbrush and crooked shacks like spots on a balding man's head. The lake was a giant, smoky mirror, doubling the sense that trouble was brewing underneath as well as above. It rained, we read. Weeks later, from my own kitchen, I saw one line of sopping trees turn black to green overnight and thought, we're in a tunnel, not a season. I'm driving, driving through each day's counter tally of gratitude to need, the city composing a close orchestra of memory so that fewer and fewer objects maintain their individualized stance against symbolism. I suppose this is more the way life eventually feels, as though we've been coloring in through our own accumulation of experience the relationship of our tales to their landscapes, so that eventually, like the best short stories, each image makes known its significance to the plot, to the change and revelation. From a universe saturated with blessings, I try to draw down just those responding to my needs and questions. My Torah, which I prepare to receive without formal study, and which I hope for while looking at the line of trees that will always now represent his coming and going, will speak about the dissolution of fear, will instruct without complete belief that it will teach how to love the world, even for all the ways it abandons you and leaves you to your books. Nothing against the Endicott, of course. <clears throat> this next poem may be a test of the powers of poetry since it's about last summer in New York, and so we'll see if this January evening can really convey the exact torture of last July. Um, if you were here, you'll understand why the poem carries this epigram from Robert Frost's poem, Birches. I'd like to get away from the earth a while and then come back to it and begin over. The Sisyphus Report. Summer's in its ditch. Shops close up and their owners turn with the open side of their signs away from the street. 
Everyone, it seems, is on brilliant vacations, little inventions they're setting off over the globe. A sweaty haze hovers over the city and stays, itself vacationing, I suppose, from Mexico City or L.A. Those left to ride the subway gather that the sinner's afterlife will mean traveling in this exhaust hose of a Manhattan-wide dryer. The garbage de rigueur makes its splashy seasonal debut, and everything trash-like about one's life starts stinking as well, since that's how garbage takes expression. For instance, tonight, as my unsuccessful attempted sleep stirs up the sediment of the past few weeks, I see that the man I'm trying to be close to is actually and irrevocably a maniac for autonomy that our plans are predicated on a fort of toothpicks which collapses when I bluster about like this, like tumbleweed to the dark apartment. Around 4 a.m., I compare my life to those less fortunate, and guess what? I come out tops, <laughs> though it's a shabby kind of heap I'm queen of. It's piled with supplicating poems and pleas from friends to switch obsessions. That's why I think vacation for distance from the way my world presses on all the wrong senses, and distance from the profound industry of art criticism that's every day more clever and deceiving. I want relief from printed matter, because in these proportions it's nauseating, the rate of obsolescence so dizzying it feels we're being constantly hurtled. But towards what? I need a break from the uncompletable daily attempt to feel a working part of satisfaction from the mind-bender of how to make these gracious given parts add up. Tantalus and I share the burden of possibility. In that hope, severe futility is also born. I have one handful of stones. They are bitter, unprocessable parts of myself. Making fists so tight my veins arch through my skin, I try to break them down. I don't have to push them over a peak. I have to push myself to a point where these emblems of self-hatred turn to dust. There's a line in this next poem that I owe to my friend and mentor, Bill Zavodsky, who wrote a poem called For Bill Zavodsky. Um, he also introduced me to uh, the beautiful poem from which this steals yet another epigram. That poem is Exile's Letter by the Chinese poet Li Po, which was freely translated by Ezra Pound. And the epigram reads, What is the use of talking? And there is no end of talking. There is no end of things in the heart. Illegal Apology. The 12 stellar days we spent trying to breathe began when I nearly missed the plane. Cabbing back from LaGuardia for my passport, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway slowed to a kind of cement. But the cabbie forbade me to call the airlines, asking, Who do you think you are? Jacqueline Onassis? Maybe if you was Jacqueline Onassis, they'd hold the plane for you. As it worked out, I was Jessica Greenbaum, made the plane by two minutes, and was still short of breath when I spun through the customs door and charged into you. 
What a country for making decisions. How did we ever choose it? Hypnotized by altitude alone, I slept while you drove up the mountains. As though sleeping was the right state for tourism, I slept stretched across the van's familiar mattress while the engine blurbered an old tailpipe song, one we considered a constant, doubling as a manifesto of fallibility. But the car, which had died on us in Galveston, Sealy, Austin, and Houston, never collapsed in Mexico. For all the more probable consequences and all the impossibility of getting it fixed along the outposts of Michoacan, it worked. I slept, you drove, and the two of us rose through the rain and the massive bougainvillea to the thin air and your friend Eva's farmhouse. We tried taking walks but ran out of breath with the house still in sight. The country seemed crammed with stupendous food but barely pumped with oxygen. And now, now is where I grow nervous since I've lost track of the village names and I'm again made aware that the silence you've asked to exist between us suffocates experience. There is no cleverness or clarity that can out-talk loss or make it less. I should have written this before, but nothing came. Instead, I told people how we found, by sheer sense of smell, the store selling coffee beans in Morelia, and of Coyocan, where we turned the corner and saw Frida's blue house, her tiny torsos plaster cast, hand-painted on the bed. I talked about the somber young Indian who manned the hidden roadside store, her singing parrot, and how painfully embarrassed she seemed by his vehement contralto. And that finally, in Toluca's tall-ceilinged, echoing pool, I could barely lift my arms and pulled a fraction of my sea-level laps. Somewhere in the boxes I've yet to unpack is the list we kept of books, food, hotel rooms, and sites. There's nothing about the last evening, how we struggled to the top of a decision like a series of fists to the top of a baseball bat. After all, what's worse than something written? Every decision we made seemed we made like that, and at the top we could barely yawn. There was no peace in either direction. It is snowing, you whom I may not address. The embers of silence glow and fade. I offer this to the coals for your disappointment, for the awful taste of ink when memory falls like a spark on these shadows and lights. This last poem requires some audience participation since it's in desperate need of a new title. But the working title is Driving Friday Night. The mind also travels. Through the darkness, we've left later than planned and are silent, dizzy, a little sick, the week still running the body like a classroom taken over by its kids. Rituals of travel get lost in the haze of exhaustion and the mind's private racket. We're hypnotized as by laundry, by the questions tumbling over and over, by the possibility of seeing the moment they're answered. 
As most do, this drive ends in stillness, a huge matched set with the mountain, punctuated by the long-gone city's analog in stars, and the invisibility of the trees, which we know have changed color, which we know are surrounding us in a drama we're left all night to imagine. We wake up through a hint of amnesia and find we're caught between two monarch wings, the flashing yellow, orange, and black of the woods, which stretches beyond, I'm afraid, our own imagination, to the question, did God consider what we would love, or have we grown to love God's imagination because it's what we have? The cold-blooded salamander zigzags through the leaves. The lake's palette seems to hold all paintings in one reflection, while the sun's first self-image is quite humble, more like a glowing gumball than the monarch who has ordered all these changes. Loving you has been a lesson in aesthetic evolution, one example of the way we design the world through love, becoming native to what we find beautiful as it becomes native to us. I'm thinking of your face, the skyline I see from the 20th floor, and these trees, they become their own definition of what we're meant for, and this planet becomes the right place. Thank you. apparent at the first reading, but like many of the best poems in any language, slowly open with each rereading. Though the scholarship is impeccable, the book, I'm sure, will freak out the sinologists, and poetry readers who think they know what to expect from Chinese poetry may be, for in, uh, may be in for some surprises. Most of all, this is the first revelation in English of the endless wonders of this Chinese poet. So I'm happy to introduce David Hinton, who's giving, I think, his first reading, <laughs> except for a reading at college years ago. Thanks. I have to decide which of these is clean. Uh, thank you, Elliot. Two thanks to you, Elliot. Um, I guess I'll have to introduce Du Fu a little bit, although Elliot told you something about him. Um, his reputation as the greatest Chinese poet is based on a lot of, a lot of things. Uh, the most important, I think, and luckily what should be most apparent here is his incredible range. Um, and what's, it's not just that he has a very broad range, but most of this range, or a large part of it, um, had never been written before about the foreign Chinese. Um, some examples would be um, commonplace daily uh, experience, um, poems, very realistic poems about the war, the very devastating war that was going on at the time, and a whole range of other unpleasant things, everything from high existential angst to diarrhea. Um, and even more interesting is that he did all of this in a very realistic style, which had also was also quite unknown. Uh, the sum result is he's something like the first complete poetic sensibility in Chinese. Uh, he lived in the 8th century um, in the Haitong dynasty. Uh, until middle age, he spent most of his 
his time trying to get a government position, um, which is pretty common for Chinese poets. There's a strange obsession with that. Um, he finally got that position, but immediately thereafter, this devastating war broke out. So after working for the government uh, for a short period of time, he resigned uh, to get away from the fighting and also some political intrigue, which was starting to, th starting to threaten him. Uh, after resigning, he, he sort of wandered along the western and southern frontiers of China, uh, very poor. Um, he managed to settle a few times fairly comfortably, but was always driven on by poverty or um, new outbreaks of fighting, or is the hope that he could get back to his home in the north, which I hope he never, he never gave up. So the first poem I'm going to read is, was written while he was still in the court, the emperor's court. Um, it's called Meandering River. Day after day, I pawn spring clothes when court ends and return from the river thoroughly drunk. By now, wine debts await me wherever I go, but then life's 70 years have rarely ever been lived out and shimmering butterflies are plunging deep into blossoms here. Dragonflies quavering in air prick the water. Drift wide, O oh wind and light, sail together where we, kindred in this moment, will never part. Uh, the second poem is called Dreaming of Li Bo, who um, Jessica already introduced to you, oddly enough. Uh, Li, Li Po is... Uh, how most people pronounce it in English. Um, when du, du Fu and Li, well, Jessica, I guess, Li Po is um, another of China's greatest poets, and as it happens, he and Du Fu were friends. When this poem was written, um, Li Po had been exiled into the far south, which was um, tantamount to a death sentence at the time. Uh, and Du Fu was still up in the north, so... He's sort of wondering what, what has become of Li Bo. Dreaming of Li Bo. Death, at least, gives separation repose. Without death, its grief can only sharpen. You wander out in valerial southlands, and I hear nothing of you, exiled old friend. Knowing I think of you always now, you visit my dreams. My heart frightened, it is no living spirit I dream. Endless miles, you come so far from the Yangtze sunlit maples. Night shrouds the passes when you return. And snared as you are in their net, with what bird's wings could you fly? Filling my room to the roof beams, the moon sinks. You nearly linger in its light, but the waters deepen in long swells. Unfed dragons. Take good care, old friend. Next poem is called A Guest Arrives, which he wrote in one of those uh, comfortable times of th that he was settled. A Guest Arrives. South of our home and north, nothing but spring water everywhere and goals arriving day after day. The path all blossoms I haven't swept for guests. Today, for you, I open my simple gate this first time. 
Dinners so far from market are nothing special, and wine in our poor home is old and unstrained. But if you'll drink with the old-timer next door, I'll call over the fence, invite him for what's left. That poem is uh, maybe hard to believe, but it's on everyone's short list of the greatest poems in Chinese literature. Uh, I'm not sure I can claim to understand exactly why, but I think if you do, you probably understand something about Chinese literature. Um, next poem is called The Musk Deer. Musk deer are very small, tender deer. I don't know if you've... I think they're only a couple of feet hot, tall. Um, at the time, apparently, their meat was considered a great delicacy. much better for them. Now they're killed by the hundreds of thousands um, for their musk oil, which is used in fine perfume. Um, it might help if I say this poem is addressed to the deer, the musk deer. Clear streams lost forever, you land served up in jade dainties. Little talent for the life of hermit immortals, unable even to resent fine kitchens. Once times fall apart, anything is a trifle. Faint voice at disaster's heart, anything. Noblemen, noble as thieves, gluttonous. You'll get wolfed down in a royal trice. Uh, the next poem is a little bit longer. Uh, in the last line, there's a a reference to Zhao Zhuan, who was um, a woman who lived during the Han Dynasty and uh, was so beautiful that she be took on a kind of semi-mythic stature and uh, was referred to a lot. Ballad of the Firewood Haulers. Kuejo women, hair turned half white, 40 years old or 50, and still sold into no husband's home. No market for brides in this relentless ruin of war. They live one long lament, nothing but grief to embrace. Here, a tradition of seated men keeps women on their feet. Men sit inside doors and gates. Women bustle in and out. When they return, nine in ten carry firewood. Firewood they sell to keep the family going. Old as they are, they still wear shoulder-length hair in twin virgin knots, matching hairpins of silver holding mountain leaves and wildflowers. If not struggling precariously up to market, they ravage themselves, working salt mines for pennies. Makeup and jewelry a shambles of sobs and tears, indecent little place, clothes cold, besieged at the foot of cliffs. If, as people say, these U mountain women are such frightful things, how could Zhao Zhuan's village be so near? Um, these last two poems are written very, very near the end of his life in the south of China. The first one is called Night. A crescent moon lulls in clear night. Halfway into sleep, lampwicks char. Dear wander, 
uneasy among howling peaks and falling leaves startle cicadas. For a moment, I remember the East Coast, mince trees, a boat out in falling snow. Tribal songs rifle the stars. Here, at the edge of heaven, I inhabit my absence. And the last poem is called Returning Late. After midnight, eluding tigers on the road, I return home below dark mountains. My family asleep out, my family asleep inside. The northern dipper drifts nearby, sinking low over the river. Venus blazes, huge in empty space. Holding a candle in the courtyard, I call for two torches. A gibbon in the gorge, startled, shrieks once. Old and tired, my hair white, I dance and sing out. Goosefoot cane, no sleep, catch me if you can. Thank you.